Hello and welcome to Newman's Thoughts, a multimedia reading project from the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture to promote the thoughts and ideas of our patron saint, John Henry Newman. I'm Patrick Callahan, director of the Newman Institute. Today is day 27, and I'm reading section 5 of Discourse 3 to St. John Henry Newman's The Idea of University. I'm using the Cluny Media edition of The Idea of University. You can follow along with this or any other edition, or even online, via our daily email. St. John Henry Newman, The Idea of a University, Discourse 3, Bearing of Theology on Other Branches of Knowledge, Section 5. Let us see, then, how this supercilious treatment of so momentous a science, for momentous it must be, if there be a God, runs in a somewhat parallel case. The great philosopher of antiquity, when he would enumerate the causes of the things that take place in the world, after making mention of those which he considered to be physical and material, adds, and the mind and everything which is by means of man. Certainly, it would have been a preposterous course when he would trace the effects he saw around him to their respective sources, had he directed his exclusive attention upon some one class or order of originating principles, and ascribed to these everything which happened anywhere. It would indeed have been unworthy a genius, so curious, so penetrating, so fertile, so analytical as Aristotle's, to have laid it down that everything on the face of the earth could be accounted for by the material sciences, without the hypothesis of moral agents. It is incredible that in the investigation of physical results, he could ignore so influential a being as man, or forget that, not only brute force and elemental movement, but knowledge also is a power, and this so much the more, inasmuch as moral and spiritual agents belong to another, not to say a higher order than physical, so that the omission supposed would not have been merely an oversight in matters of detail, but a philosophical error and a fault in division. However, we live in an age of the world when the career of science and literature is little affected by what was done, or would have been done, by this venerable authority. So we will, I suppose, in England or Ireland, in the middle of the 19th century, a set of persons of name and celebrity to meet together, in spite of Aristotle, in order to adopt a line of proceeding which they conceive the circumstances of the time render imperative. We will suppose that a difficulty just now besets the enunciation and discussion of all matters of science. In consequence of the extreme sensitiveness of large classes of the community, clergy and laymen, on the subjects of necessity, responsibility, the standards of morals, and the nature of virtue, parties run so high that the only way of avoiding constant quarreling in defense of this or that side of the question is, in the judgment of the persons I am supposing, to shut up the subject of anthropology altogether. This is accordingly done. Henceforth, Man is to be as if he were not in the general course of education. The moral and mental sciences are to have no professorial chairs, and the treatment of them is to be simply left as a matter of private judgment, which each individual may carry out as he will. I can just fancy such a prohibition abstractedly possible, but one thing I cannot fancy possible, that the parties in question, after this sweeping act of exclusion, should forthwith send out proposals on the basis of such exclusion for publishing an encyclopedia or erecting a national university. It is necessary, however, gentlemen, for the sake of the illustration which I am setting before you, to imagine what cannot be. I say, let us imagine a project for organizing a system of scientific teaching in which the agency of man in the material world cannot allowably be recognized and may allowably be denied. Physical and mechanical causes are exclusively to be treated of. Volition is a forbidden subject. A prospectus is put out with a list of sciences, we will say, astronomy, optics, hydrostatics, galvanism, pneumatics, statistics, dynamics, pure mathematics, geology, botany, physiology, anatomy, and so forth. 
but not a word about the mind and its powers, except what is said in explanation of the omission. That explanation is the effect that the parties concerned in the undertaking have given long and anxious thought to the subject and have been reluctantly driven to the conclusion that it is simply impractical to include in the list of university lectures the philosophy of mind. What relieves, however, their regret is the reflection that domestic feelings and polished manners are best cultivated in the family circle and in good society, in the observance of the sacred ties which unite father, mother, and child, in the correlative claims and duties of citizenship, in the exercise of disinterested loyalty and enlightened patriotism. With this apology, such as it is, they pass over the consideration of the human mind and its powers and works in solemn silence in their scheme of university education. Let a charter be obtained for it. Let professors be appointed, lectures given, examinations passed, degrees awarded. What sort of exactness or trustworthiness, what philosophical largeness will attach to views formed in an intellectual atmosphere, thus deprived of some of the constituent elements of daylight? What judgment will foreign countries in future times pass in the labors of the most acute and accomplished of the philosophers who have been parties to so portentous an unreality? Here are professors gravely lecturing on medicine, or history, or political economy, who, so far from being bound to acknowledge, are free to scoff at the action of mind upon matter, or of mind upon mind, or the claims of mutual justice and charity. Common sense indeed, and public opinion, sets bounds at first, to so intolerable a license. Yet as time goes on, an admission, which was originally but a matter of expedience, commends itself to the reason, and at length the professor is found, more hardy than his brethren, still, however, as he himself maintains, with sincere respect for domestic feelings and good manners, who takes on him to deny psychology in toto, to pronounce the influence of mind in the visible world a superstition, and to account for every effect which is found in the world by the operation of physical causes. Hitherto intelligence and volition were accounted real powers. The muscles act, and their action cannot be represented by any scientific expression. A stone flies out of the hand, and the propulsive force of the muscle resides in the will, and there has been a revolution, or at least a new theory in philosophy, and our professor, I say, after speaking with the highest admiration of the human intellect, limits its independent action to the region of speculation, and denies that it can be a motive principle, or can exercise a special interference in the material world. He ascribes every work, every external act of man, to the innate force or soul of the physical universe. He observes that spiritual agents are so mysterious and unintelligible, so uncertain in their laws, so vague in their operation, so sheltered from experience that a wise man will have nothing to say to them. They belong to a different they belong to a different order of causes, which he leaves to those whose profession it is to investigate them, and he confines himself to the tangible and sure. Human exploits, human devices, human deeds, human productions, all that comes under the scholastic terms of genius and art, and the metaphysical ideas of duty, right, and heroism, it is his office to contemplate all these merely in their place in the eternal system of physical cause and effect. At length he undertakes to show how the whole fabric of material civilization has arisen from the constructive powers of physical elements and physical laws. He descants upon palaces, castles, temples, exchanges, bridges, causeways, and shows that they never could have grown into the imposing dimensions which they present to us, but for the laws of gravitation and the cohesion of part with part. The pillar would come down, the loftier the more speedily, did not the center of gravity fall within its base, and the most admired dome of Palladio or of Sir Christopher would give way, were it not for the happy principle of the arch. He surveys the complicated machinery of a single day's arrangements in a private family, 
our dress, our furniture, our hospital board. What would become of them, he asks, but for the laws of physical nature? Those laws are the causes of our carpets, our furniture, our traveling, and our social intercourse. Firm stitches have a natural power, in proportion to the toughness of the material adopted, to keep together separate portions of cloth. Sofas and chairs could not turn upside down, even if they would, and it is a property of caloric to relax the fibers of animal matter, acting through water in one way, through oil in another, and this is the whole mystery of the most elaborate cuisine. But I should be tedious if I continued the illustration. Thanks for listening to Newman's Thoughts. To discover more about today's reading, or to download this season's reading guide, visit newmansthoughts.com. This has been a production of the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture, an apostolate of the Diocese of Lincoln, in partnership with St. Gregory the Great Seminary and the UNL Newman Center, St. Thomas Aquinas Church.